Today, a man who needs no introduction, but I'm going to give him one anyway. The creator of Uhtred of Bebenberg and Richard Sharp. It's a very big welcome to Bernard Cornwell. Thank you, Sharon. Thanks for joining us today, Bernard. Sharp and Uhtred are your two most famous characters, which is why we're not going to talk about them very much. It's called The Slice of Medieval, so we thought we'd pick a medieval topic to talk with Bernard about, and both decided that we'd like to talk about Agincourt, or in Bernard's case, Azincourt, and the Hundred Years' War. So my first question, Bernard, is when you wrote Harlequin, which was the first book in the original series, there were not that many novels set during the Hundred Years' War. And the Thomas of Hookton books were set in the early period of the war at Cressy and Poitiers. What made you choose that period? I think it was a fascination with, well, one, the record, of course. I mean, Cressy, Poitiers, Agincourt, that's three test matches, one on the road, <laughs> all on the opponent's <laughs> territory, too. And the longbow fascinated me, totally fascinated me. So I think that was why. Yeah, the power of the longbow. I've been reading Azincourt this week um, just to remind myself of it because it's so long since I read it. And it's like the power and the strength that these men must have had in order to draw that bow must have been incredible. It was incredible. And they found the bones of archers in graves and their bone structure is unnaturally large. Their bones developed to literally anchor the muscles. Yeah. And I've met archers today who can fire a longbow just as effectively as the guys that did at Agincourt. And, I mean, their backs are just a mat of muscle. Mm. They were extraordinarily strong. And that was one reason why the longbow didn't become, if you like, more widespread. Mm. You had to train with it for a very long time. Most English and Welsh archers started at six or seven. And by the time they were 16, 17, they were tall enough, strong enough, and skilled enough to shoot it. But the poor French tried, <laughs> but they failed. I mean, the weapon was so efficient that, in fact, the Duke of Wellington, during the Peninsular War, made an inquiry of the War Office in London whether it was possible to have a corps of longbowmen. Because <laughs> if you put 500 archers from Agincourt up against any battalion of the British Army in 1810, the archers would have won. They're more accurate than a musket. They shoot further than a musket. And they shoot much faster than a musket. They can fire a lot more arrows in a minute than three bullets. Oh, indeed, yeah. yes, and far more accurately. Yeah. In fact, ben, ben Franklin said that if the rebels in the American Revolution had had the longbow, the war would have been over in six months. So it's a good job <laughs> they didn't, I suppose. Yeah. So the, the Agincourt campaign, obviously, it's the stuff of legend. And you, you'd already written about the earlier period. So obviously you were fascinated by, by Agincourt and the campaign that, that led to Agincourt. 
But did you find any difficulty in plotting a story around it and making it perhaps significantly different from the Grail Quest series? I don't remember that particularly. Um, I mean, I always say that 95% of the work in a novel is finding the story. Mm. Um, so I suppose I did, because I always do. But I don't look back on any of those books with any regret. I, they were difficult to write. I really don't. I'm not sure I remember enough about the novel to answer you properly. So I'm just going to say the answer to that is no. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, it was interesting that I noticed that you, looking in the historical notes at the end of Agincourt, I noticed that you'd used actual archers' names from from the battle for, for, for a significant number of the characters. Was that something you decided on early on, or, or did, did you just decide to do that later? It was either taking players for Liverpool or <laughs> going back to the original source where we actually do have a list of the names and yes. just plucking the names from that list. Yes. There's Tom Scarlet and Will of the Dale. And I'm there thinking there's Helen the Dale, Will Scarlet in Robin Hood. Were you thinking of Robin Hood? <laughs> did I use those names? You did. Yeah. They're pretty common now, I think. Yes, they were very common, yeah. <laughs> I remember uh, I was in a church in Derbyshire somewhere, for whatever reason, and we stumbled across this list of people from the village who had been sent to fight, probably in Scotland somewhere. And I thought, there they are. Those people were, you know, real people, not just names. But mm. it, it's amazing how the names are recorded and live on. I think we're peculiarly fortunate in Agincourt in having the master roles yeah. mm. and an enormous list of names that you can choose from. Yes, yeah. I have a little gap in my medieval history knowledge. I'm great at the early stuff, like King Richard I and King John, and good at the end of it with Edward IV and Richard III, but Henry IV and Henry V, I've never actually done much about them. And Henry V, he was only king for about, what, nine, eight or nine years? It was a very short reign, yes. What do you think of Henry V? Well, I'm not that fond of him, oddly enough. I mean, I know he's a great English hero, but he was also horribly religious, and I always have a great suspicion of re religious fanatics. <laughs> I mean, I think if I remember Agincourt rightly, it begins with the death of some Lollards being burnt at the stake. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Um, and that was very much his idea. He was a very, very pious man. Mm -hmm. um, and there's probably nothing wrong with that. I mean, he is an interesting character. I mean, wounded at the age of 16 with an arrow that just misses his eye. Mm. And there is somewhere a description of how they extracted that arrow from his face. I mean, it must have been the most horrific time for him. Especially as a teenager as well, having such a wound. Yeah. Um, and, and then he goes on, of course, to win one of the legendary battles. So he's an interesting man. And essentially, of course, he gets his ambition. He's named to be the next king of France. Then he dies too soon. <laughs> and then yeah. his son is crowned king in Paris, and the French all complain that the coronation feast is cooked by the English, and it was inedible. <laughs> no, that doesn't change then. <laughs> it doesn't change at all. The, the thing is, I suppose, he his very sort of, his, his religious piety and so on is perhaps one of the reasons why he kept going towards Agincourt, hoping to, to gain the victory he wanted to secure France. I think that was more, more a political choice. Um, 
I'm not saying that religion didn't play a part in it, and I'm sure he was praying fervently. <laughs> but the the reason for that march was that he knew Harfleur was not a sufficient victory. Mm. Yeah. That he had managed to raise a vast amount of money and had sent this quite large army across to France. And he couldn't go back to England and say, "Look, we've got this town. Um, the people who'd lent him the money are going to say, well, what are, you know, what else?'" So I think he basically wanted to march through France to flaunt and show off that, you know, look, I am free to march through France and they daren't face me. Mm. And I'm also pretty sure that when they finally did corner him, he must have been fairly apprehensive. Yes. And I think it really was a political decision. He, he just dare not go back to England with such a small victory. He mm. needed a much larger victory. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. So we talked a little bit about some of the information you gathered for Agincourt. How hard did you find it to research the period? Now, I seem to remember that you relied a fair bit on, is it Juliet Barker's book? The wonderful Juliet Barker, yes, who wrote a wonderful book called, unsurprisingly, Agincourt. <laughs> and there's also, of course, to Anne Curry, yes. who also wrote a book called Agincourt. And I find it very pleasing that the two, if you like, major books on the campaign and the battle are both written by very, very clever women. Mm. But Juliet was extremely helpful. She's a very nice woman. I don't think I nagged her too much, but I do think I asked her a couple of questions when I was doing the research. But really, I mean, the research was all done for me. Mm. Um, it's all in Juliet and Anne's books. Uh, all it was a question of was reading them. And then, of course, visiting the site. Yeah. And recently, a very good book was published called No Bigger Slaughter by Michael Livingston, who's an American military historian. That was about the Battle of Brunenburg. But before that, he wrote a book on Cressy. And what Michael is incredibly good at is tracing the exact geography of the armies. Mm. And he moves the Battle of Cressy quite a long way from the accepted battle site and <laughs> says, look, you've got it wrong. Ever since whatever it was, you've just got it wrong. And long after I wrote the novel Agincourt, I was talking to Michael and he said, oh, you're wrong about Agincourt too. <laughs> and he's in fact publishing a book which will put out his new theory. And I've looked at his maps and find them absolutely convincing that we've got the wrong battle site. And I think the French are incredibly generous. I mean, they've put up a nice museum at Agincourt. <laughs> And the road that crosses the so-called battlefield is lined with cut-out figures of English archers. But I suspect that Michael is right and that the real site is some miles away. But there's a lot of that going on, isn't there? The revision of battle sites, because I had the same problem with the Wars of the Roses. Every time I wrote about a battle, somebody said it was somewhere else. Well, they do that, don't they? No, they do. So I'm just praying that, <laughs> just praying that Michael Livingston never visits Waterloo. <laughs> He'll get there. <laughs> yeah, you see, I'm all right. The Battle of Lincoln in 1217 was all around Lincoln Castle and Lincoln Castle's still there and they haven't moved it. So I know that I'm at the right place for that battle. <laughs> yes, but, uh, you know, the, it's the archaeological evidence. Yeah. I mean, the for Brunenburg, what has nailed that battlefield down, although I'm sure the arguments will go on, mm -hmm. is the fact that Wirral archaeology, who are wonderful people, have found so, so many relics there, broken swords, arrowheads, mm -hmm. spearheads, and so on. It's disappointing because I was rooting for Doncaster. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So what do you find the most difficult aspect of writing stories in the medieval historical landscape, Bernard? Lord above. Um, I'm not sure, to be honest. I don't think they're any more difficult than writing about the Regency period and Richard Sharp or Uhtred in what you might call early medieval. Mm. As I said, 95% of the problem is finding the story. Mm -hmm. 
if you get the story, then the thing is going to be fine. It'll be absolutely fine. And as I tend to write in an extremely inefficient way, which means I don't plan anything, I just start writing on page one of chapter one and see what happens. And it works for me. It works very well for me because I find that every day when I sit down, I want to find out what happens. And I don't know. But by the end of the day, I know a little bit more. And as long as you're confident in your research despite Michael Livingston moving the battlefield 10 miles. I think it's going to work for you. Mm. Yeah, I'm very relieved to hear you say how you write your books because uh, because I'm very similar and I, I thought I'm doing something wrong probably. But uh, yeah, it's quite nice to sort of not plan what happens and to change your mind as well. As you write, the things you write are going to change Mm. the assumptions you had. And if you don't give the characters space to grow and live, they won't grow or live. They'll just be flat on the page. But on the other hand, there are other writers, Joanna Rowling, for instance, who plot everything ahead. Yeah. And no one can say that's (laughs) not effective. So I'm not going to say that you and I are doing something wrong. We're just being a little bit perverse. (laughs) Probably. I think I can safely say, having read all Derek's books and all yours, Bernard, that the way you two do it is definitely the way I like to read them. Thank you, Sharon. I'll take that as a compliment. When I first read Derek's, it was like, this is how I like to read historical fiction, fast-paced, enjoyable, and don't know what's going to happen next. And now I know that neither did you guys. (laughs) I mean, the highest praise I can get from a reader is I couldn't put it down, or I was reading it at night and decided I'd stop at the end of the chapter, but I had to keep going. And I think, gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, both yours and Derek's, it takes me about, I just put aside three days when a book comes out and it's like, right, I'll read it and then I'll get back to work. I find it's uh, quite a liberating way to do it, really. I do think it's inefficient, but um, it's the only way I know how. Yeah. And you do get to a point where, you know, you realize you've written yourself into a corner and can't get out. And then, you know, you utter a few swear words and go back four chapters and change something. I usually go for a long walk. Yeah, that helps too. <laughs> Clear the mind. <laughs> See, I don't have that problem with me writing non-fiction. It's all laid out for me. My problem is just finding the sources and then having to decide between two of them because no source actually agrees with what actually happened. There's always that. Yes, the only non-fiction I've written is on the Battle of Waterloo. And I enjoyed that because I didn't have to find the story because the story was so brilliant and we knew, you know, we had plenty of sources. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then the problem was getting the facts right, yes. which is a huge effort on a non-fiction book. Yeah, because you know somebody's going to jump down your throat if you get a little bit wrong. Oh, yes, they're going to jump. My problem is dates as well. Um, because I'm writing in 1217 or something, I end up writing 2017. Somewhere in the book, there will be 2017 instead of 1217. <laughs> I know there will. Well, that makes life interesting. My problem, oddly enough, is, and I'm really ashamed of this because I'm an avid sailor and have crossed the Atlantic under sail, but I get mixed up over east and west. And I thank God I don't get mixed up over east and west at sea, maybe because there's a compass usually within two feet of me. Mm -hmm. But when I'm writing, I've got to the point now at the end of every chapter, I tell the computer to find every east in the chapter and change it to west and vice versa. But uh, I don't know why that is. It's obviously a missing synapse in my aging brain. Yes, it's a thing. Uh, I, do, I do it as well. And in fact, if I'm driving and I say to my wife, we need to turn left, she automatically now checks with me that I don't mean right. My wife just says, you've gone the wrong way. And very often I do. <laughs> Ads again. <laughs> but the book I'm writing now, I've actually got, I mean, it's the good way to do it, a map on the computer the whole time. 
clearly marking mm. east and west, north and south. And I think I can fairly say that after 100,000 words, I haven't got it wrong once, thanks to this map. You just have to do what works, don't you? Yeah. Is that the Delayed Sharp book or is that another one? It's the Delayed Sharp book, yes. Yeah, I feel your pain because I believe you had some dentistry to, to get done. Oh, Lord, I was going through the valley of the shadow of dentists all last year. <laughs> I mean, American dentists see British teeth and they rejoice. It means another child will get through college, which costs a lot. They're like plumbers, dentists, aren't they? They, they come along and they say, oh, well, that's no good. We need to rip that out and start again. Rip that out is exactly what they did, yeah. too. Yeah, I've had my share of dental surgery, so I sympathise. Right, just going back to archers again, what I meant to ask you was, obviously, the archer is the hero in the Grail quest and in Agincourt. And you've said already that, you know, you are fascinated by the longbow and so on. The humble archer is, I guess, a kind of common man in the Middle Ages, isn't he? Very much so. So I, I suppose there's an appeal in writing a story with the common man as your hero. Is that how you see it? Partly, yes. I mean, it's also partly the very existence of the longbow, which is a game-changing weapon. Mm. Um, I mean, it, it really was a game-changer. And it wasn't until the advent of artillery that the French had any counter to it. It's much the same way in the Sharp books that the British possession of rifled weapons mm. made a huge difference and the French, out of sheer pig-headedness, refused to adopt them. So yes, I, I think that was what fascinated me, was how in a war, campaign at war, the possession of this extraordinary weapon made such a huge difference. Mm. And it did. I mean, it made an enormous one. Maybe less so at Agincourt than at Cressy and Poitiers, but mm. still a huge difference. The knights on their horses were supposed to be the stars of the fight, and yet it was the lowly archer in the end. It was the lowly archer. And I think this was certainly recognised by Henry V. And in a sense, it's a time when, if you like, the common people of England were recognised as being essential to the survival of the nation. I mean, up until then, it had been the Anglo-Norman aristocracy mm. with the mounted knight. And suddenly your lower class people were seen as battle winners. Yes, that is quite that is quite a change, it isn't is. it? By Agincourt, the Lord was supplying the armour and the weapons for the um, common man, wasn't he? Well, I imagine the archers supplied their own, no. not the arrows. The arrows were made in an extraordinary process, whereby some villages just produced the ash shafts, uh, loads and loads of blacksmiths made the heads, other people plucked the goose feathers, and they were then assembled, and they were packed at the tower and sent abroad in barrels. Um, so the the king provided the arrows and i don't remember the exact figures but you can sort of more or less work it out for yourself mm. we did an experiment with a wonderful man who is a resident archer at warwick castle and we put a mannequin of straw which we called a frenchman <laughs> um some 200 yards away from him and i said well how many times can you shoot him in a minute and kevin i think loosed I think if I'm right, 12 arrows, of which three went straight through the mannequin, and the rest would have killed the, the mannequin's non-existent neighbors. <laughs> but he reckoned he was shooting a little slow that day. So you could say that the sort of maximum rate of fire was about 15 arrows a minute. There were some 5,000 archers, and the first French attack took at least eight or nine minutes to close on the English line. So if you multiply 15 times 5,000 times eight, you end up with an extraordinarily <laughs> high number of arrows, and it's in yeah. the hundred thousands plus. And they all had to be made, they all had to be supplied. For the bows, I'm pretty certain, I mean, there, there were bows that could be issued from the Tower of London, mm -hmm. but I think most archers like their own bows. Mm -hmm. 
Yes. Although, of course, there were professional bowyers who would have made bows for them. But, I mean, if you are Lord Burks <laughs> and you're taking 50 archers to war and you've got a contract with the king, you would probably provide, make sure they all had good bows and would leave with at least two or three hundred arrows each. Mm. The numbers are staggering, though, aren't they, really? I mean, in an age before the Industrial Revolution, producing that many arrows is astonishing. It is astonishing, and it was it was incredibly well organised. So that out of the Tower of London, there was this flow of arrows going to follow the army and supply them. It really was extraordinary. And they even had spaces. Mm. They had spaces in the barrels to stop the fletching getting crushed. Mm. Um, yeah. I mean, it was... It, it was a, an industrial process. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the evidence is that the steel for the arrowheads was not incredibly well made because they really didn't understand the process. They understood that you added bones to the fire, that somehow that hardened the iron into steel or something like steel. But at the Battle of Poitiers, a French chronicler records that the English arrows crumpled on hitting breastplates. Mm. Um we still won, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> I noticed, again, I think it was in the notes at the back of Agincourt, you, you, you did refer in passing to this argument about whether a, a bodkin arrow could go through a, a breastplate or not. And you decided to go with the idea that, that it would have. Is that, is that you really make, having a sort of gut feeling about it? No, you can go onto YouTube and see it happen. Yeah, um, well, I have, yes. <laughs> um, but, of course, the, you know, the French are not complete idiots, despite all evidence to the contrary. <laughs> and they had learned to make shaped armor that would deflect the arrow. I mean, in many ways, the arrow is a heavy psychological weapon. You're, I mean, th you have to feel sorry for the French. I mean, they are advancing across a newly plowed field. And one of the things I was very pleased to learn was that it had been planted with winter wheat. And when they planted winter wheat, they plowed much deeper than normal. Yes. And it had rained all night. I mean, not just rained, it was torrential rain. So they're basically advancing through a morass of mud and they're being hit by these arrows. Now, some of the arrows would have wounded them and some would have killed them. But if you're hit by an arrow that doesn't penetrate your armor, even the impact of the arrow is so mm. shocking that it will throw you back a pace. And the other thing is they can't advance with their visors open. Otherwise, they're going to suffer like Henry V mm. suffered at the Battle of Shrewsbury. You're going to get an arrow mm. through the face. Um, so their visors are closed, which makes breathing difficult, and they're struggling through the mud. Um, I mean, it was, it was a no-win situation. It must have been horrendous. And the, the temptation also is to look up, isn't it, to see what's coming at you, and that's the last thing you should do when there's arrows in the air. It's the last thing you should do. You've written about so many different battles. How do you approach writing battle scenes? And has that approach changed during the time you've been writing? I don't think it's changed at all. There are two rules for me. The first is the one expressed by, or if you like, explicated by the great Sir John Keegan in his wonderful book, The Face of Battle, yes. which looks at the common soldier and really asks some very simple questions. What did he see? What did he hear? What did he smell? What did he do? Um, so I always try and put the reader into the place of one of those guys, and this is what he's seeing, smelling, hearing. But the other rule, if you like, and it is a, it's my own rule, but I'm sure plenty of other writers have done the same thing, is to make quite certain that the reader has a very clear idea mm. of the battlefield before you even begin. Um, because you're probably not going to have a detailed map in the book, 
And if the reader wants to follow the battle, he has to know where he or she is on the battlefield um, and why they're doing what they're doing. So set the scene first. I mean, when I wrote the nonfiction book on Waterloo, the very first chapter is a description of the battlefield mm -hmm. told from Wellington's perspective when he first saw it a year before the battle and why, why he made a note of that place, thinking this is a good place to, to fight. Uh, and once you've got that picture in your head, what follows will make a lot more sense. But once you're in the battlefield or into the battle, then, as it mm. were, the camera zooms right in. Yeah, I think, I think that sounds... That, that <laughs> matches what you've written. So. <laughs> oh, it does. Yes, I know. <laughs> Something I was going to ask you, and we were talking to Ben Kane about this earlier last year, I think. Obviously, you write a lot of battle scenes. Do you attempt in any way to make them different from each other or do you take the view that those reading your books will expect battles to follow to have a style perhaps that they're familiar with oh i think the second probably yeah. i mean you don't need to make them different because they're already different <laughs> yeah um, i mean every battle is different you know you Poitiers is a completely different scene to Cressy or Agincourt and Cressy mm -hmm. and Agincourt differ from each other and what's at stake differs so I think you just must trust the history don't try too hard I mean there's this or well, there was a vogue a few years back I don't even know if it's still going on whereby you had sort of modern fighter jets at Pearl Harbor and machine guns at Gettysburg and I was at this is incredibly silly yeah and I refuse to read those books. And they may be very good for all I know. I mean, but that's just trying to make a battle very different. I'm sure that Henry V would have loved to have had a couple of general purpose machine guns at Agincourt, <laughs> but the, the battle would have been over in 10 minutes. Yes, I agree. I agree. That's, they are rather silly. Well, the, the point, um, I think Ben made the point to us that there's only so many so many ways you can describe hacking, slashing and and so on in a battle. So you have to sort of write that a little sparingly. Oh, I don't it... believe you have to write it sparingly. <laughs> Lay it on. No, I thought you might say. <laughs> no, the more hacking and no. slashing, the better. <laughs> yeah, so I think I do tend to use, overuse certain words. Though, but uh, So uh, have you got a favourite battle in terms of the battles that you've written? Not necessarily just... Oh, Waterloo. Waterloo, yeah. Yeah, sorry it's not medieval, but... No, uh, no, that's fine. <laughs> Waterloo has always fascinated me, and I think I've probably visited the site probably 20 times. Really? And walked it. Um, it's just such an extraordinary story. I'm not saying that Agincourt isn't an extraordinary story, because it is. No. But of course, Waterloo is so much vaster, certainly as much at stake. And it is, by its very nature, an incredibly dramatic battle, um, because I think... Mm. However many times you read the story of Waterloo, you really do not know how it's going to end because it's so close. I mean, the Duke was right when he said it was a damn fine run thing. Um, <laughs> it was incredibly close. It's easy writing about it to make it sound easy with plenty of hacking and slashing. But it was not easy at all. And it was gruesome and horrible. But Agincourt is in its own way incredibly dramatic. But I still think if it's going to be a favourite, I'd have to go back to Waterloo. I guess the scale of it as well, it's just a huge canvas. Well, it's it? the scale of it, and it's also the drama of it. I mm. mean, by 1815, there was no doubt at all 
that the two greatest soldiers of the age were Napoleon and Wellington, and they'd never faced each other in battle. <laughs> I mean, this is the Wimbledon final. And, <laughs> um, I mean, that fact alone gives it an extraordinary drama. And I'm sure most of the world, if they had a bet on it, would have bet on Napoleon. Mm. The Duke wouldn't have because he was actually <laughs> curiously and quietly confident. I think that's but the same, the same way, of course, you would have certainly not bet on Henry V at Agincourt. No, no. I mean, these things go down into the folk memory, don't they? The close battles, hard-fought battles, which then turn out to be victories for a side. They, they're part of the folk memory. Well, they're part of the story of a nation. Mm. I mean, we may regret that, but battles are a turning point in history, mm. which is what, in a sense, gives them an importance. And history does change very abruptly. It probably didn't change that abruptly at Agincourt because of the subsequent death of Henry V from disease. Mm. But Waterloo certainly changed everything, um, as the Battle of Yorktown changed everything. Mm. Bosworth Field changed everything. Yeah. I think that's interesting, though, because if Henry V had lived longer, it would have been a much more significant change. He, Because he would have been able to hold on to France and England much better than his infant son could. Well, he would have been, he would have been crowned King of France. Yeah. Instead of his son at age nine, I think, being crowned King of France. Now, you know, you're then in the what if. I mean, how long Henry could have held on to France, I don't know. Mm. Uh, I'm sure there's a lot of Frenchmen would have said, let's get rid of him. Mm. But Yeah, I think they probably would have done just like they did with Henry VI. You know, Joan of Arc would have still appeared and roused, <laughs> roused the French to rebellion. <laughs> yes, probably, yes, yes. Well, it's the logistics of fighting effectively an overseas war, isn't it? Because you can't rely necessarily on those within the country. Well, that's true, yes. yes. Um, I mean, I think probably it would have still ended badly. <laughs> but it would have been frightfully good yes. for Henry's ego if he'd have been crowned King of France. He had a big enough ego as it was, though. <laughs> Do you have a favourite character in all your books from the Hundred Years' War? Is it Thomas of Hookton or Nicholas Hook? Who's the favourite? I think it's Thomas of Hookton. Um, I've always liked Thomas, and I'm thinking of writing another one about him, but we'll see. Oh, that would be good. <laughs> I could do another of Nick Hook and the Battle of Hanoi. Yes, I wondered whether you might do that. Well, it's a very interesting battle, because yeah. it's a battle where you have longbowmen on both sides, because the French managed to recruit a vast number of Scottish archers. So I've certainly thought about that, and I have not visited Hanoi, and may not until I've talked to Michael Livingston about it, but... Um, <laughs> To be on the safe side. <laughs> yes, just to be on the safe side. Get him to meet you there and show you where the battlefield is. <laughs> now, I think you're you're on record. Correct me if I'm wrong here. I might be wrong. That you, that you don't want to start a new series of books, but you you probably either write ones on previous series or or standalones. Is that is that more or less where you are? I think that's absolutely right, Derek. Yes. I mean, I'm in my 80th year. I mean, most series I write are at least 10 books, so that's a gamble that I'll live to 90, which my doctors would not take um, the bet. So I think it's, it's you know, simply prudent to, to reckon there might be another five, six, seven books. Who knows? I won't stop writing until they push me under, but that push under ain't that far away, you know. <laughs> oh, it is. Are you tempted to half write a book and leave that one so that 
when God forbid it does happen, there's one that somebody's like, oh no, there's a Bernard Cornwell unfinished. How do we finish it? <laughs> no, I'm not in the least bit tempted. Good. <laughs> Don't do that. <laughs> oh, that would be so frustrating for me. <laughs> I heard a rumour that you might be in, in England uh, next year at the HNS conference, or at least online, if not actually there. Is, that, is there any truth to that rumour? I think there is truth to it. Um, they very kindly invited me. I think it's down at in Dartington. Yeah, yeah it is. Um, in Devon. And we lived in Devon for a brief time, and I just think it's time I reacquainted myself with the pubs. <laughs> so I think it's, I mean, it's not It's not engraved in stone or anything, but no, I no. did accept the invitation, and I'm very much looking forward to it. Oh, it would be great if you, if you are there. Um, mm. I shall certainly be there, but... Uh... Yes, I'll I'll look forward to that. I remember when you were at Harrogate in was it twenty fifteen? Lord dear, I can't remember when it was. <laughs> well, I, the reason I think it was twenty fifteen was because you were talking about Waterloo, and then there was one about Agincourt, and the fact that it was six hundred years since Agincourt, two hundred years since Waterloo, and a few of the authors were complaining that you'd managed to get Waterloo out in advance of the actual date of the anniversary, and none of the others had. <laughs> then it must have been twenty. It must have been twenty fifteen. Yes. Yes. <laughs> because that was the only reason to write that book yeah it's interesting that we've got the two biggest battles that england have been involved in agincourt and waterloo and they're literally 400 years apart <laughs> well you could add trafalgar too yes that was the other one wasn't it yes there are lots of battles <laughs> and we do like to have a battle after a thunderstorm well that's true isn't it i mean that's i can't remember now the list of battles that occurred the day after a thunderstorm but it does seem to work for the English, or then maybe the British. Mm, it's because we're used to the weather. Maybe. <laughs> I mean, I still think that the real reason for the overwhelming English win at Agincourt was the mud. Mm. Um, I mean, obviously the archers played a large part, so did the men-at-arms, but the mud was even must have been horrific, just horrific. Yeah, I mean, I think weather conditions seem to play quite an important part in an enormous number of battles at various times. Fog and snow and... Mm. rain and all the rest of it makes you wonder why commanders didn't say well hang on lads we'll wait we'll wait for a better day well of course <laughs> napoleon did that at waterloo he didn't wait for a better day but he waited two hours mm. to give the ground a chance to dry out and i mean that was an enormous gift to wellington those two hours yeah but no you don't have a lot of choice in the weather do you no <laughs> take what's given so I've got one last question, Bernard. My new book is the story of Nicola de la Haye, the lady who defended Lincoln Castle against the French. And I got really excited opening the books. Do you still get excited opening the box of books? Yeah. 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 I mean, I have far too many books. My wife complains quite a lot. <laughs> yeah. Every to. toilet in the house has been invaded by books. and <laughs> They seem to grow. But yes, I mean, I still get excited even at my advanced age when I'm looking at a blank screen and think this is the first page of a new book yeah. and off you go oh i get worried i sit there thinking okay how am i going to do this <laughs> well i think you say to yourself i've done it before i can do it again yeah absolutely um, that's, that's what i end up yeah. saying come on you've done it before and presumably you've been thinking about it for a long time before you started i'm thinking about the next book i'm going to write after this one not so much about this one because i did all that thinking last year yeah mm. um and i am really looking forward to kissing this one goodbye and starting the next one yeah you get i think you get to a, you get to a point where you want to see the end of that particular yeah. project and you've got so many other ideas that 
you want to get on with it. Yeah, very much so. Uh, are you able to tell us what you are writing next, or is that a closely guarded secret? It's a closely guarded secret. I will not press you. <laughs> but all I'll all I'll tell you is that it's in the Sharp era. I do like Sharp. He's been around a long time. <laughs> he... Oh, well, he didn't say it was Sharp. He said it was in the Sharp era. <laughs> yeah, but there'll be some mention of Sharp in there somewhere, even if it isn't really Sharp. <laughs> I, I did like your mention of Thomas of Hookton in uh, Agincourt, yeah. our archers respected uh, the great to- archer Thomas of Hookton. I think he'd become Sir Thomas by then, hadn't oh, he? Oh, probably, if I, yes. If yeah. I remember, and he was not the first archer to be knighted. No. I, mean, I always thought that what Thomas ought to do is hair off and become a mercenary, <laughs> like the great Sir John Hawkwood. Yeah. You know, get down into Italy where the wine and the women are better <laughs> um, and have some fun. But I've thought of that, but I don't know if I'll ever write it. It means mastering the incredibly intricate history of Italy. Oh, yes. that is confusing, yeah. <laughs> it is incredibly confusing, which I can confess I have done quite a lot of work on it. So it's possible. I mean, Thomas would enjoy himself in Italy. <laughs> yeah, I think he would. And there's, there's plenty of conflict in Italy for him to get involved in. He'd be spoilt for choice, really. <laughs> yes, and most of the mercenaries were either Hungarian, German or English. Yeah. But again, the English advantage was the good old longbow. So it's a possibility. Maybe the book after the next one. Well, we, we, we look forward to that. <laughs> no, but it would mean I'd have to do a research trip to Italy, which is no great hardship. Yeah. Poor thing. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny. My wife's always saying, "When are you going to do some research in a place that's warm?" Yes, I always regretted the Duke of Wellington never had a campaign in Tahiti. You <laughs> could always do a mutiny on the bounty thing. Mm, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's been done, hasn't it? <laughs> right. Well, I think it's probably time to wrap up. So many, many thanks, Bernard, for taking the time to chat to us today. I know we've enjoyed it, and I'm certain the listeners will too. That's very kind of you, Derek, and thank you, and thank you, Sharon. Thank you very much for joining us, Bernard. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. All the best uh, with whatever you are writing next, Mm -hmm. (laughs) and uh, we'll eagerly await it. So will I, just to find out what happens. Yeah, I'm looking forward to Sharp's Command. I think you'll like it. Yeah, I'm sure I will. (laughs) I'm enjoying it at last. That's always a good sign when you're enjoying the writing. Yeah, Yeah, brilliant. Is it October it's due out? I think so, yes. You seem to have this knack of making sure that your books are out just before my birthday, and my husband is very grateful to you. (laughs) Well, happy birthday, Sharon. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, well, thanks very much, Bernard. Thank you very much. Take care. And thank you. See you at Dartington. Yes, definitely. Okay, bye Bye -bye. for now then. Thanks very much. much. Bye-bye. Well, thank you very much to Bernard Cornwell for joining us today. I really enjoyed that, I have to admit. Join us next time when we have Catherine Warner joining us. Catherine is an expert on Edward II, Isabella of France, and the uh, favourites of Edward, Piers Gaveston and... Hugh Dispenser the Younger. So we are going to have a fabulous time talking with Catherine about one of the most interesting reigns, I think we can say, of English history, and certainly um, one of the most controversial. So please join us next time. I'm Sharon Bennett Connolly. And I'm Derek Burks. And we look forward to having you with us again next time. Mm-hmm.